I fought a good fight. I finished my football race. And after 18 years, it's time. Basketball players, we're really supposed to shut up and dribble, but I'm glad, I'm glad we do a little bit more than that. Eventually, every ball would go flat. But that doesn't mean that your life will flatline. What will you do when the game is over? Hello, 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 and welcome back to episode 71 of Bro Bible's Endless Hustle. I'm your host, Arthur Cade. I can't believe I just said the number 71. How incredible. But that's all because of you guys. The show is really trucking along. Incredible guests. And uh, I love doing this for you guys. Speaking of incredible guests, what an episode we have ahead today. Talk about two extraordinary women who have both left their mark in the industry. Our two guests today, one of them is the lady of the moment because she's got one of the biggest movies on Netflix. She's one of the biggest stand-ups on the planet. And she is about to go into a next stratosphere of success and celebrity. I have Eliza Schlesinger on the show. Her new movie is called Good on Paper. It's on Netflix now. As I told her during our interview, I feel like this is her Amy Schumer train wreck moment. And it's an incredible movie about the dangers of dating and a pretty awkward situation that she went through that she was able to turn into this that she was able to turn into this hit Netflix movie. And you guys will hear all about it during our interview. Our next guest is someone who is familiar to everybody because she was Jan on The Office, and everybody loves The Office, me included, one of the best shows out there. Melora Hardin, incredible actress, filmmaker, documentary maker, you name it, artist. This woman does it all. She is a star on Freeform's The Bold Type, which has its series finale June 30th. She's saying goodbye to another hit show. How lucky. Imagine going from The Office, which becomes iconic, to The Bold Type, which will also be iconic, hitting another generation. Melora's had an incredible career, and we talk all about it. Her husband, her real-life husband, also stars next to her on The Bold Type. We get into everything. Great office moments, saying goodbye to The Bold Type, working with your husband. We cover it all. So let's get this thing underway. Our first guest, Eliza Schlesinger. Make sure to check out Good on Paper. It's on Netflix now. Eliza Schlesinger, congratulations. Fantastic movie you've made here, Good on Paper. You wrote, starred, probably did craft services, did it all, I'm sure. So, I, ate a lot, I ate a lot of craft services, but yes. First of all, watching this movie as a single 43-year-old male in New York reminds me how much I hate dating. So It'll do that, yeah. You've got to vet everybody, and this movie's all about vetting someone and figuring it out. So obviously there has to be an autobiographical component. So where did this happen for you? This happened in LA. Um, this movie starts sort of starts on a plane that happened in real life. This movie is, I would say a little over two thirds, absolutely true. Uh, and when you watch it, you can play this fun game. Every single lie that Dennis Kelly says in this movie happened to me in real life. Uh, all of our situations, all of our interactions, all of our conversations are real conversations. So here's the million dollar question. The dude that did this, what's his reaction going to be when he sees this movie? And are you hoping he sees it? Uh, it's actually more like a $1 question because from the bottom of my heart, I could not care less. What started <laughs> off as like, oh, I'm so angry. I'm so hurt. I want like some weird revenge after all these years. When I think about what happened, I think about the characters in this movie. 
and what I got out of it. Like, it's so not about his reaction. It's more about what I created. And that's the big takeaway. You've been on the rise for a long time. Obviously, you win last comic standing. You've been hustling, touring, TV specials, you name it, you've done it all. I feel like this is kind of your train wreck moment. Like for Amy, when train wreck came out and it just catapulted her into the next stratosphere of what she became. I feel like this is your vehicle for that. When you write something like this, how much of it is bent towards, I need this to be funny, I need this to be commercial, or is it more just like, I want this to be authentic, I want it to be me, and I want it to be relatable? How do you like frame this thing? You know, I think about Trainwreck, um, and Amy is a funny woman, and she wrote that, um, and she had Judd Apatow, who obviously has his platform. I didn't have that with this. This was me by myself, between gigs, after failed auditions, on Saturday nights, when nobody would really give me a chance. And I wasn't ever, you know, to this day, I've only booked a couple things. You know, it's always that thing of like, oh, why didn't I book that? And I, they always say, if you want to get somewhere in Hollywood, like write something for yourself. And so I did that. So this was done very quietly while people around me were getting things and while the world was going on and I would work on this script and I was, it was a cathartic process. But the objective for me was to write something I felt good about and to write something relatable that had that tapped into vulnerabilities and honesty that I don't think we get a lot of time from out of our female characters in rom-coms. I wanted to create a vehicle for myself, but I wanted to be honest about this type of woman, which Andrea is more like every woman than rom-coms give women credit for. She isn't a disaster. She isn't a, a hapless romantic. You know, she had her life together. She was doing well, and this weird thing happened. And I think that is super relatable to men and women, like she's actually quite normal. And so this was me, I took a chance. I met a producer who said, yes, this movie is a compilation of a lot of tiny yeses to get to you're, one big yes. You're married now. And I have a very similar dynamic. Like my career has always come first and dating has been always casual, but you know, now I'm at a point in my life where I want to meet somebody. Where was that point for you where you were like, all right, I've been putting career first all this time, I'm now ready to actually meet someone. You know, we said that for the write-up of the movie because it's really hard to contextualize a normal woman. God forbid a girl just like pays her own bills and like lives her life. Um, you always want to meet someone. So I would always date. I was never weird about it, you know. Um, it was always, you date someone with the intention of hopefully this is the right person. So I've always... I think I wrote this because nothing in my dating life had ever been so out of whack. I don't typically date crazy people. And even after this happened, I was very honest with the men I dated subsequently. Like, hey, I kind of got my cage rattled. So if you want to hang out, see me naked sometimes and eat dinner late at night, I'm down, but I probably don't want to be your girlfriend just yet. And that honesty and that self-reflection, I think got me to a good place. You win Last Comic Standing in 2008. What's kind of your mindset coming out of that? Are you like, the world is my oyster at that moment? Are agents and managers coming at you from every direction? How do you process and what's happening at that point? I had a manager already. And so, you know, you get an agent and you, your world is actually very small because even though you're given the gift of people thinking you're a headliner, you have to earn it. You have to prove it. So you set out on touring comedy clubs and- I didn't have anyone tell me that I couldn't do it. I didn't have any help or advice. So I just made it. I just figured it out on my own. But I decided I was going to swim and not sink. And I decided I was going to evolve as a comic and keep writing and pushing myself versus just rest on my laurels or fade away. And, uh, and that is what I did. 
when you start doing the comedy clubs, I'm so fascinated by the touring comedian life. You know, I've been to so many of these comedy clubs and some of them are like Apollo level and some of them are shitholes. Sure. Were there ever experiences that you were just like, oh my God, what am I doing here? And then on the opposite end, what were some of the coolest experiences in terms of being able to perform at a specific venue? I didn't have any reverence for specific venues because I didn't, I wasn't like a stand-up comedy nerd or fan growing up. I would pass the Addison Improv on the way to school. So like that was kind of cool to go there, but um, it, it was, it's less about that and more just like, you don't know to expect anything. Like it's a big deal that like, I remember thinking like, wow, if I could only have my own merch one day, wow, if I could only make five grand a weekend, oh my God, they gave me free chicken fingers. So you're cobbling together this experience. I mean, I've played a club that shall remain nameless, very small. There were, the green room was really where the garbage went in the alley and there were rats and they didn't have an AC. So while you're on stage, they would just open the door and like waft it in for people. Um, I've played a club where nobody would walk me back to my hotel. So I had to walk across a field at night. Um, I've played clubs where fights have broken out. I played a club one time where a woman was crying for 45 minutes in the front row and then got arrested. Um, and then you get to do like nicer clubs. And now I've just been doing theaters for so long. Um, so it, the, it gets a little easier. Were there ever moments when you're doing some of the lower level clubs where you're like, man, maybe I should have become a doctor or an accountant or something. <laughs> I, you know what? By the grace of God, I've never had to play like super B rooms um, because I worked really hard at creating that hour, getting that hour out there and touring as hard as I could. Um, but there are nights, I can tell you there are nights where you're sick and you're just, and it's a Sunday and you're like, why are they here? And you have the flu and you got to just put it on for an hour. I had to get on a plane and go uh, to the Middle East for a show for our troops one time and I had the flu and I didn't realize it till I got on the plane and that was the hardest show of my life. So if I can get through that and get through anything. That was like your Michael Jordan game right there. That's your Michael Jordan flu game. An often made comparison, yes. So there's this fantastic show on HBO right now called Hacks. Yeah. I don't know if you've gotten a chance to see it, but Gene Smart is brilliant in it. Have you gotten to watch the whole season yet? I've watched the whole season and I'll tell you what, Looking at Gene Smart is like looking at the ghost of Christmas future. I have never related to an, a character on TV in the, in the way that I immediately got her, her low-key generosity, people underestimating her, and that speech she gives when she talks about how hard it is. I was cheering in my living room. She was like, even when you have talent and luck, it still never gets easier. And I was just like, that's it. That's going on my tombstone. She gets me. So she's great. It's great. There's a moment at the end when she's talking with the, her, men, her mentee and she tells her how the last show had gone and she actually says she bombed, but it reinvigorated her. And I thought that was such a powerful moment. As a comedian, do you find when you do have a shitty set or you bomb, does that reinvigorate you? Does that create a drive to want to get better? Similar to what she described there? I mean, bombing, here's what's unrealistic about that. Bombing once, like with brand new material, it's like, yeah, who fucking knows? But bombing once, that's like an outlier. Like, yeah, it was an off night. I've had nights where you you're, you do these sets and they kill, 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 and then it doesn't. And that's when you're like, okay, that was that crowd. I'll go grab another set to make myself feel better. And then that set's even better because it's a new energy, new crowd. So it, that's not exactly true, but of course you 
think about it a lot, but what I've come to realize over the years is in about six hours, I won't think about this ever again. <laughs> Do you ever look back on when you were first starting out? Because obviously this is a craft like anything else. Interviewing is a craft and we get yeah. better. It's reps, you know, it's 10,000 hours, all that yeah. great stuff. Do you look back on early Eliza and do you sometimes like, oh my God, what was that? I sucked here. Why am I moving like this? Do you cringe? Are there moments yeah. of that? I can't even watch my own specials. Um, it's, yeah, I, I definitely, it's not cringe as much as like, hey, slow down. Or like, you know, you know, I, I, I could have gotten so many more hours out of my hours because I think I talk so fast that I have two hours worth of material. I try to never look back. I try to never think about the past because there's really no point. Um, but it is difficult to watch just because you're like, that's not even funny now. What are you talking about? <laughs> what are you doing? So I just, all I can do is evolve and always come from a place of honesty and try to slow down. <laughs> but that, that should be the t-shirt, try to slow down. Try to make me slow down. <laughs> You get to work with Margaret Cho. I've interviewed Margaret so many times over the years and her influence on comedy is unprecedented. Do you ever kind of like look and think, damn, Margaret Cho is in my movie. And do you ever pull her aside and just tips on the industry, anything like that? Like, what do you soak in from working with her? I mean, I think it's two different questions. I've known Margaret for a couple of years and the first time I really talked to her, I think I had her on my podcast and I, I was so ready to be like, oh no, like, you know, we're so taught that other women in comedy are like competitive and it does happen, but she was so open and, and elegant and delicate. And she's her own brand of uh, like elegant weirdness. And she was so soft with me and we're so vibrationally different. Our deliveries are different, our joke, like we're very different women. But I so respect her. I respect, I remember when her American Girl was on TV, which is always a trip in this career to like your contemporaries, your colleagues are people you watched growing up. And uh, what I really enjoyed about working with her was how flexible she was during the process. She had brought no ego. She was there to work. She said yes to everything. She made it easy. And, uh, and that was such a gift. So I respected that. Who were some of the female comedians? And I know not to make it gender specific, but some of the female comedians who you really look up to growing up, like who were your idols? I didn't because for me, it's never been about gender. And I'm not even saying that in like a weird, like trying to seem empowered way. Like I've never seen a difference between me and the guys that I am just as funny as, if not funnier than. Uh, the need to separate is uh, sort of diminutive. I've always felt there's always like a, a weird agenda there. I grew up watching Martin, like in Living Color, Kids in the Hall, uh, that cast of SNL with Chris Farley and Adam Sandler and Phil Hartman and those women of that time, like Molly Shannon and Sherry O'Terry and Anna Gasteyer. I never, I had never even heard that people didn't think women were funny until I got to LA. So it was, it's not something I ever thought about. And it's something that I have to answer to, but I don't, when I'm on a lineup with seven other guys and I crush just as hard as them, it's not because I'm a girl. It's because I'm better or just as good. How do you know when you crush? Like, is it audience reaction? Is there an internal feeling? Like, are you just like, I fucking killed that. Like, how does it materialize for you where you walk off the stage and you're just like flexing your muscles? It's uh, well, you, it has to be the audience reaction. You never have crickets and you're like, no, I'm pretty sure I crushed. Um, it's a combination of doing the material that you wanted to do 
plus having them on their feet undulating with applause um it's it's a combination you know it's one thing to just like it's an easy crowd and they love everything but crushing is like you came to speak they came to hear it they were on their feet they're into it they're silent when you're speaking because they want to hear everything and they're giving you those laughs and they're pouring over it's a vibe it's a heavy vibe. i always tell people i've been doing this for over a decade and i always tell people when you have that killer interview it's like an orgasm it literally is like great sex because you're like shit i did my craft at the top of its ability at like yeah. at an elite level what is it like for you when you do have that moment? What are you experiencing when you do crush? It's to quote Mr. Saturday Night, which is to me one of the great stand up movies. He's like, um, I mean, he's a guy, so this is a bit reversed, but he's like, every man wants to know you and every woman wants to fuck you. You have the audience, you can take them anywhere you want to go, and it's the greatest feeling in the world. And it really, you get off stage and you, I feel like I could pull a Mack truck with my teeth. You feel and that high, you understand why comics can be depressed or turn to drugs because nothing beats that high. And you're just buzzing. And you, it's funny, you walk off stage and I'm earlier in my career, or even now, you know, you walk off stage and you were just everything to this crowd and you did something and you built something. And then you walk back through the kitchen into the alley and like you can't catch a cab or nobody will give you special service at like the pizza place across the street. And you're just like, I guess I'm back in Gen Pop. Nobody knows what I just did. I'll just wait for this Uber. <laughs> By the way, are you standing while doing this interview? I am standing. I've been standing. Oh my God, that's so... You're the first Zoom in the probably hundreds that I've done that someone's done standing. I, I've had them in cars. I'm like, I'm watching you move. I'm like, is she standing? That's so gangster. Oh, I, I guess I'm more comfortable standing. I'm very used to it. And I think I process thought better. Move. I'm trying not to like pace around like I do on stage, but yeah, I'm standing. <laughs> Am I the first person that's brought it up? Yep. <laughs> doing my go. craft, flexing my muscles, doing my craft well. No, good for you. So when people see this movie, and obviously I want to talk about your relationship with Netflix. You've done five specials with them. The movie's on Netflix. Everyone says Netflix is the place to be if you're a content creator. Tell me why. No, I think early on... Um, uh, in their sort of nascent stages, Netflix was this streaming platform that really gave voices a chance that traditionally weren't getting seen. You know, think about like Orange is the New Black, or there was a show called Lilyhammer, which was so niche and weird that was on. So they really gave people a chance, people of different colors, different narratives, and it wasn't like formulaic and it didn't, you didn't have to hit the numbers that cable hit and it wasn't network sitcoms. So they take a lot of chances and they've grown so much. So for the longest time, they were innovative in what they were creating. And now their numbers are so huge. You know, if you can put something on the platform and it can do okay, cause it doesn't catch fire. But if you put something up there, like it is there for people to find because so many people find it. So it really is this great equalizer. Like it's up there, hope people find it. Um, the numbers can't be beat and the creativity they give you, you know, they don't weigh in on, my material for my stand-up specials, but, um, and they were super helpful. They acquired this movie and they came up with the term like rom-con. You know, your hope is that you get a good creative team who shares your vision and, and helps you move it forward. So they can be very good in that way. I noticed on your Instagram, you were at the CMTs, you were a presenter. So I had Florida Georgia line on the show this morning. Oh, I had fun. no idea you were a country fan. So who were you geeking out over? Who'd you get to meet? I thought Florida Georgia Line would be there and they weren't. And I did a red carpet interview and they were like, who are you excited to meet? And every name I said, they're like, they're not here. 
Um, <laughs> so for me, it's just the genre of country and I go song by song and, you know, it would have been cool to meet like Tim McGraw uh, or Garth Brooks. They weren't there, but I will say this. I got to meet Kelsey Ballerini, who it turned out was a fan. And that was cool to find out. Uh, my husband and I, in our wedding, we did a, our first dance to a song called What If by Kane Brown. And we had a little choreographed dance and I knew that he was nominated in a category I was presenting. So I, like a dork, queued up our wedding dance video. Cause I was like, if I meet him, I'm going to want to show him this video. And I don't want him to watch me scroll through my phone. So I did meet him. I, he, he won the award I presented and backstage, I told him this story and I was like, and I have the video. So I have a, a picture of me showing him our, our video. So it was a real full circle country moment for me. By the way, super laid back and humble guy. And how did he react? Like, was he like kind of taken back or was he just super cool as he always is? Both. He was super cool, super laid back. Um, country singers, country people are often very humble, you know, and just because these are songs about your roots and heartbreak and honesty. Um, part of me was like, even though I look great that night, I'm like, this guy's probably like, who's this old lady showing me a video of her wedding? Like, who cares? But he was very sweet. He tolerated it. My final question is, so many people are fans of you. Who's been the one person who you found out or met that is a fan of you that you just fucking blew your mind. Sharon Stone is a fan. And once I found that out, I was like, set it up. I have to meet her. And so we've become friends. That was like, where did, how did she find me? Christian Slater showed up at a show one time. He brought his daughter. What? Anya Taylor-Joy, my assistant tells me is a fan. I think she gave an interview where she mentioned my name once. So these are not relationships that I maintain because she's Anya Taylor-Joy and very hard to get to. Um, yeah, every once in a while, I'll be like, oh, that person's a fan who knew. Turns out, um, Little Big Town, I met them on the red carpet, they're fans. So it's always that thing where you never know who's watching. Eliza, congratulations. Good on paper, coming out on Netflix. Fantastic movie. I actually really enjoyed it. You're Thank awesome. You so Thanks for a fun interview. Thank you so much for a great interview and noticing I was standing, Arthur. All right, folks, that is one of the hottest people in Hollywood right now. Eliza Schlesinger, she's absolutely crushing it. Make sure to check out the hilarious Good on Paper on Netflix now. Fantastic movie. And like I said, this is Eliza's moment. And I can't wait to see where she goes next. Our next guest on this episode is Melora Hardin. Again, Melora, Jan from The Office. Talk about a scene-stealing character and a character that just became iconic because of The Office hitting Netflix, and now it's on Peacock. She moved over and she's done other great shows, including Transparent on Amazon, another show that became a huge award winner. But she's finishing it up on The Bold Type right now. The Bold Type's having its series finale. She plays a very powerful and strong-willed woman named Jacqueline on the show. If you haven't seen The Bold Type, it's a wonderful look inside of the making of a magazine. And it was great talking to her about just this wonderful career that she's built for herself the success of the office and the bold type and of course transparent and so much more so here she is Melora Hardin enjoy all right it's a great day on the endless hustle today as I'm joined by the office favorite now the bold type star she says goodbye to another series and someone who's been in our hearts and our TVs for a very long time, Melora Hardin. Congratulations. Let's start with the bold type, obviously, because that's your current show. You're saying goodbye. 
what is it like saying goodbye? Tell me, tell me about saying goodbye to a series. It's always, it's always hard, you know, because you've been living in the skin of this person for so long and living in the reality of that, that fictitious reality. I think that, you know, for me walking into the, the bullpen and, you know, of, of Scarlet magazine and just knowing that those sets were all coming down was sad. And, and, you know, I had my little private moments where no one was around uh, saying goodbye to my office and goodbye to those things. I ended up uh, purchasing the painting that was hanging in Jacqueline's office, which I was always so blown away by because when I first walked into that office and saw that painting um, that the set designer had chosen, uh, I was just, I was like, I had been told a long, 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 long time ago by an act, amazing acting coach that my animal essence was a tiger. And then, and then she had chosen, the production designer had chosen this incredible painting where a woman is holding two tigers on leashes and one of them is opening his mouth and this giant flame is coming out. And I, I literally said that day, when this series is over, I have to get that painting. And so I have that painting hanging in my place in Montreal. I ended up buying a place there because I love the city so much. It's where we filmed the show. Um, so I'll be back in the city and that's good. And I have, I have memories from the show and, um, and I have relationships that will that will for sure survive. And uh, yeah, it's always always sad to say goodbye, but also exciting to to move on to whatever's next. Hold on, I have to explore this actor essence thing. Yeah, the whole. But so, how does that all come about? Are you like working with a coach, and he goes, you know, Laura, like you have the essence of a tiger. <laughs> like, how does that all? Happen? Well, yeah, I mean, he he had he was just sort of. I used to call him Yoda in the Valley because he's sort of. He sort of had this like very, he has this very spiritual essence to him and he's very energetic and he really picks up on so many cool things. And yeah, we were working on stuff and we got to know each other very well. We became very good friends and he just, he just sort of did that. He, he would sometimes, he would sometimes relate people to, you know, to whatever their, their energetic animal essence was, which is sort of, you know, as actors, we just need as many things as we can to kind of hook into kind of who we are, what we bring. You know, if you watch, you ever watch directors talking about how they cast actors. I remember watching, um, I think it was that year. It was like, uh, it was a panel with all these incredible directors and they were saying, what is it you're looking for when an actor walks through the door? And, um, and they all sort of agreed that they really, they really didn't know who they wanted until that person walked through the door. And so I think as an actor, it's so important that you're bringing who you are into the room because you, you can't be trying to be what they want. You have to be who you feel this character is. They're looking for you to embody this character in your way, in a way that is grounded in you. So I think the fact that he was doing the animal essence thing was just sort of a way to make me feel into my ferocious, my ferocity, but also my sensual, you know, my sensuality and then sort of all, if you think about a tiger, there's like so many elements to that, if you're going to try to personify that. And uh, it just worked for me, you know, it worked for me. I'm, I'm sure some actors it wouldn't work for, but for me, it did. That's so fascinating because if you think about both with Jan and also Jacqueline, they were these either want to be high-powered women or in Jacqueline's case, high-powered women. And you do such an incredible job of bringing that to light. Like if you hadn't been an actress, you probably would, you could have been a CEO because you have that aura. 
but yet having spoken to you in normal life, you're just like this relaxed, gentle, thoughtful, articulate woman. When you get to kind of that create that alter ego of this like power driven human being, that's gotta be so much fun to turn that switch on. Oh yeah, it is. I mean, it's my, it's my favorite thing about my job is that we get to step into all these different skins and, and see what that would feel like, you know, and get to live that, live that reality for, in this case, you know, on the bull type five seasons, it was so such a joy to, to, to live as Jacqueline for five seasons. When you get to be part of a show, obviously with The Office, it was more of a recurring character. You may have been labeled main cast some short certain points, but with Bold Type, you were main. And when you get to be part of a show for five, six, seven, eight seasons, obviously it's great, I'm sure, having the guaranteed paycheck and knowing you have a job, but having that long-term commitment with something, what is that actually like? Because so many actors and actresses in Hollywood, they don't know where their next job is gonna come from. What type of security does that give you to be able to breathe and actually kind of live life and settle in life? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, everybody's nature is different. I, I guess my nature is sort of like, um, I'm pretty mellifluous with, with, with work uh, as far as when I have it and when I don't, I'm kind of filling my time. I'm always filling my time with something creative. I'm really creatively generating all the time. And I'm always looking for opportunities to be creative, even if it isn't in front of the camera, I'm looking for other opportunities, whether it's directing or creating, or I'm a collage artist, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a mother, I'm, 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 I'm always doing things and creating things. So I think that, um, you know, when, when you're on a show like The Bold Type for five seasons, your your creative some of your creative juices are going there but for me I'm like one of those people that I like to be doing a couple things at one time I I'm really I tend to um other series I've been on I've written both of my records like two, I have three records but two of my records my first two records I wrote them on sets because when I'm kind of as you were talking about that kind of feeling of just the freedom of knowing, having some routine to your life, because if you're a independent contractor, which is what we are as actors, you, you don't really, you know, your routine changes from job to job. Some jobs require so much incredible intensity. Some require, you know, you're there sometimes you're not there other days, you know? Um, and then when you have time off, you have the time to create your own, your own um, routine. But there is something about knowing kind of what your work routine is going to be roughly, especially when you've been on a show for five years, you really do have a sense of the timing, the way the crew works, the way the, you know, the cast works, you know, how, how long it'll take to make a scene, that kind of thing. Um, so I'm always doing other things. I mean, I've been, you know, working on a, a, a four part documentary series the whole time that I've been doing these four years of working on the bold type. So, um, that's really interesting how those things run in tandem for me. Um, and I guess, I guess that's just what I would always recommend to any, any, any creative person, not just an actor, but any creative person is just that you always have something running in your life that is turning you on and keeping you passionate and keeping you engaged in your own creative process, no matter what, no matter whether you've got a penny to your name or not, or you're like swimming in the dough, you know, either of those extremes, you still have to have the same like consistency of being satisfied deep in your soul with your 
creative output or you're just, you're, you know, I think that's very important. Obviously with The Office, it was a semi kind of cult hit when it was on NBC. Then Netflix gets it. It develops this whole second life, becomes an A-plus list celebrity itself, you know? And the, the new audiences, a new generation discover this show, discover Jan. When that's happening, and you're like, well, we finished up like in 2005 or whatever it was. I, I don't know when the actual finale was, I forget. But now they're rediscovering this and people are rediscovering you. What was that? How, are you, how did you process that? What was actually happening when the Netflix crowd rediscovered The Office? To be honest, it's never been like a rediscovery. It's, it's been more like a constant sort of like like surge that's just getting like this and this and this and every year it just seems to get bigger and 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 my fans get younger and younger and younger and younger and younger of course I'm not getting older I'm just staying the same but um but that's happening and um so that that's interesting and you know similarly that's happening with the bold type right now because we just uh, we just put, you know, the bold type is now on Netflix in the UK and in India, and uh, we just have this like huge um, uptick in 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 viewership, uh, of course. Uh, and so, who knows? I mean, the world of streaming had, you know, I started acting professionally when I was six years old, so I did many, many, many pilots and short-lived series um, before I hit the office that were on the air and then they were off the air. And when they were there, they were there. And when they weren't, they weren't. And, um, but so the office was like a new phenomenon for me, a new experience, I think probably for most people. I mean, the office was, that was sort of the beginning of streaming and what that looked like because we were on iTunes. And when we went onto iTunes, we started becoming really big. Um, more, you know, and then of course Netflix took it to another level and now it's, you know, on Peacock and, you know, it's just, it's an iconic show now, but you know, I don't know. Well, it'll be really interesting to see what happens with the bold type. I mean, the bold type had its kind of, it had its audience for sure, but I think it just feels, it just feels to me like the audience is expanding exponentially right now because of Netflix, because of it going, you know, overseas in a, in a way that it can live on now, you know, and I think that, I'm sure that, you know, the executives at Freeform and NBC Universal were thinking, you know, we better give it a fifth season because now it's stream worthy, right? It's binge worthy. You can, you can watch all five seasons in one sitting because it's going to live on Netflix. So pretty it's, fascinating. And Hulu, it's on Hulu too. And yeah, it's funny you mentioned the whole, hey, I've been a part of projects that have failed or been pulled off the air. And it's funny when you talk to actors and actresses about, they'll say, oh my God, this show, I thought it was going to be a hit and then it didn't survive. And then you'll see other projects that end up becoming enormous. Yeah. Uh, did you know at any point with The Office that it could become and grow up into what it grew up into? Like, was there ever a moment where you're like, even if this thing doesn't make it, this <laughs> can become iconic? Well, I think I knew it was special creatively. I knew it was special just from like the very beginning. Um, the way we were working was unique and different to anything I had done at that point. I didn't believe that we were a hit until we won the SAG award. Um, and then I had to carry around that heavy trophy all night, which is sitting up two of them sitting over there, which are like 
they're, they're, I don't even know, they're like 50 pounds each. They're, they're bronze and they're sitting on a marble base. And I carried that around all night. And the next morning I woke up and I could not lift my arm because my bicep was so sore from holding it like this all night. And that was the physical proof that I needed to, to make myself realize, oh, we must be a hit. <laughs> and I think that's just the wariness that comes from being in the business as long as I have. I don't, I don't really believe the success until uh, uh, now it's undeniable. I can't, I, I can't, I can't turn away from the office is iconic and Jan is iconic and people tell me that every day. So I'm like, wow, that's pretty remarkable that, um, that I got so lucky to be on a show like that. And transparent was also a, a real, it was a real, um, special show. It was a very special show and it, it gave so much to the trans community in such a way that was uh, beautiful and, you know, um, got me nominated for an Emmy and, you know, just, it was, that was an incredible show. So when I moved to the bold type, I really wanted to do something that also was doing something good in the world. I always love hearing when you're a part of something that's so massive, a lot of times either casting directors or producers will only see you as that character. Mm -hmm. And I've talked to so many actors who are like, it's a gift and a curse. The gift is hey, I got to be a part of this incredible project and people will always know me for this. Mm -hmm. The curse is when I walk into a room either to audition or with a producer, they see Jan from the office or they, <laughs> unless you're Carell, like Carell moved into the A-list during the show and that was awesome. But mm -hmm. was there ever a fear because of the success or were there ever moments for you where people only saw you as Jan or were you able to smoothly transition right into Transparent and other projects and not fall into that, that curse stage? Yeah, I think I'm really fortunate. I, I, you know, I, I've always thought of myself as a character actor in the sense that I, um, I play characters. That's what I do. And um, sometimes I'm very, very, uh, my face is very malleable and I can really look really different ways. I think if you look at me as Jan, and then you look at me as Tammy, and then you look at me as Jacqueline, it's, there's three really distinct women there and really different. So, um, so yeah, I think that I'm really lucky that way. Uh, and I haven't run into that. No, people are willing to accept me um, as many different many different people. And I think that, again, it goes back to essence. I, I think if anything's gonna be coming through my characters, you might see some essence of, of me that might come through those all of those characters and other characters I've played on Monk or whatever else. Um, so yeah, I... I I don't worry about that. No, I, I don't worry about that. I just uh, just do my work, you know, best I can. <laughs> I heard you on Brian Baumgartner's podcast, and I've oh. had him on the show. I love him, by the way. Isn't and the way he can come, the way he can go in and out of Malone is amazing. Kevin, I, I was just like, <laughs> dude, just being Kevin Malone the whole time because I love yeah, the office. Yeah. But you he's talked about how, yeah, he's amazing. Yeah. You talk about how you and Carell and then Berlanti saw it. There was instantaneous chemistry and you guys knew that something could develop out of this. As an actor, do you feel that right away? Is that something like dating? I, that's how I would equate it. Do you see, <laughs> do you feel something electric and you're just like, there's magic here? You can, is it tangible? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, when, when Amy and I, Amy Landecker played my, my girlfriend on Transparent and, um, you know, when we met, like, it also has a lot to do with the other person. And if the other person is willing to step in 150%, 
and you're willing to step in and 150%, you can make sparks fly. And that was what I knew Amy was certainly, you know, she just stepped in like, and we both just were like, <laughs> we were like, we were like, you know, just like fireworks because we were both completely in our characters, completely in for that experience of those two characters. And, um, and yeah, that was the thing that we felt. It was, it was me and Greg Daniels and Steve who were sitting at lunch uh, in the pilot. And, and it was when we just, we just sort of felt that, we felt that, that connection, that spark between, between Jan and Michael, that was just, it was kind of undeniable. It was like, ooh, that is so weirdly wrong and so hot. <laughs> you know? We could all feel it. <laughs> How do you, so when you're having the, because they were such polar opposites. I mean, yeah. I, it reminds me of some people I've dated in my past and I'm like, right. this should never work in real life. But yeah, yet yeah. she really saw something in him. And I've always wondered like, what do you think it was there? What do you think that connection was? Because in real life, I can't imagine the two of them together, but somehow <laughs> you're watching it on the show and they really, I feel like they really did love each other even though she would never probably admit it in a million years. Yeah, I think I think she did. And I think also he represented the white picket fence that she never thought about or spent any time thinking about. Um, and it's also kind of fun that, you know, in the bull type, we got to see, you know, Jacqueline and Ian struggle with their with their marriage and that actually the, the actor that plays Ian is my real husband in, in real life. So um, so we get to talk about sort of how and that was a very important element for me to bring sort of what the what it really is to be in a long-term relationship and then you know conversely you know I you know how different it would be you know the way Jan and Michael held, de dealt with their challenges it couldn't be more opposite from the way Ian and Jacqueline deal with their challenges which is with love and with maturity and with um, even making choices to separate for a minute to come back together and and just with with history and with kindness and with friendship and and um, it's just such the the diametric opposite, um, you know, of of watching that that happen. So yeah, building those relationships, building those love affairs um, on camera are always really interesting. And even when you're working with your own husband, um, you know, my relationship on film with him as Jacqueline and Ian is very different than than our relationship at home, you know. I was going to ask you, working together, is that a, is it stressful? Is it easy? How do you separate the two? What if like you're not in the zone that day, but he is? <laughs> is there like, what's wrong with you, Melora? Like you suck today. Like what's that dynamic actually like? I think that if we weren't as solid as we were, I think it could be really challenging. I mean, I've known him for 35 years. <laughs> um, we've had many, you know, ups and downs. We have two children together and, you know, we're very solid in our marriage. So I don't, uh, and also as artists, I think we're, we really respect each other and, and um, we have different process, processes. Uh, and so, yeah, it's just, um, it's actually really, really easy to work with him. It was super easy. You know, he, he wasn't, he's not cast as my husband because he's my husband. He's cast as my husband because in the pilot, they, uh, Sarah Watson, who created the show said to me, um, you know, we're going to, we're going to, you know, we're going to get a husband for you. You know, you have a husband and, you know, he's going to be English and you've been married for 23 years and you have two boys. And I was like, oh, and he's a photojournalist. 
And I said, oh, well, that's interesting. Uh, my husband is English. We've been married for 23 years at that time or whatever it was, 20 years. Um, and we have two girls and he's an excellent actor and could definitely play a photojournalist. And I just handed them his reel. And I said, why don't you take a look at, take a look at his work? And, they, and it was just, it was like they had written the part for him without even knowing that they had. And of course they watched it and they were like, well, that is just a no brainer. He just was perfect for the part. I love that you got your husband cast on the show. That's amazing. What about- I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I suppose I did, but, but he really did. It was just, they wrote it just for him. They just didn't even know they did. <laughs> so we talked about saying goodbye on the bold type. When you say goodbye on the office, what is that pr process like? What was it like? Because the, the interesting thing about the office is all of those people on that show, and I've chatted with every cast member over the years, was pretty much an unknown going into that. I mean, Steve was already semi-known and really blew up during the show. But Jenna, Jim, obviously, you know, with uh, with John Krasinski has gone on to A-plus list fame. But saying goodbye and growing together through that type of journey where not only did the show become a monster, but so many of the actors and actresses were able to, to springboard into either higher profile acting gigs or other other ventures, whether it's podcasts, other shows. What is it like going through that type of journey together and then saying goodbye? Yeah, I mean, I've been working since I was six years old. So I've worked with super famous people. I've worked with people that were just starting out. I've, I've worked with, you know, giant directors, you know, Clint Eastwood and Gene Hackman, incredible, incredible movie stars and incredible, you know, actors. So I think for me, um, I kind of was always on the outside. I was never, I never felt like I really belonged there. I mean, I liked everyone and I think everyone liked me, I guess. I mean, you know, we all felt good together. It just, I just wasn't, I wasn't really part of that family the way they were because I wasn't there every day. And I also left the show. I mean, I came back and, you know, did a guest starring thing in the very last season, but I left the show when, you know, when Steve was no longer on the show, I had no reason to be on the show. So, um, so, you know, he left quite a, quite a long ways before the show was over. And so did I. And so for me, it wasn't maybe as jarring as it was for the others who were there every single day behind their desks and doing that same job. Because Jan was always the one who was outside and came in. And I always was outside and came in. And I also came in with a whole different uh, perspective and a whole different, you know, um, wealth of experience that just came from being in the business as long as I had and uh, coming from, you know, two actor parents and just my, my perspective, my, the context for me of that show was really, really different than the context um, for everyone, for everyone else, I think, you know, I would imagine. I want to ask you about Hackman. He's my probably all-time favorite actor. And he, when he retired, and obviously it kind of was under mystery, no one knew if it was mental stuff or he just was done. Yeah, he was just tired. <laughs> what, what was he like? He's such an enigma to me because that was during a time in Hollywood where unlike today with social media, where everybody's overexposed. Oh yeah. You don't really get to know those guys and girls back then. What yeah. was Hackman actually like? Well... I mean, I did a movie with him called Absolute Power. We have we have an incredibly hard scene to do together. It's sex and 
violence. And those are really hard things to do with, with just in general. It took us, you know, two weeks to film one giant scene that lasts about four and a half minutes in the movie. It starts the movie and it is the catalyst for the entire movie. And, um, you know, he couldn't have been a more wonderful person to do those things with. It's very, very hard. He's also as old as my father. So he's, you know, he's, he's quite a lot older than me. That was part of the storyline. He could have been a really, a real jerk, you know, and he was just, he was just, he had such excellent manners. He was such a gentleman. Um, he saved a place for me at lunch every day and told me to come sit with him. He, um, you know, I was wearing a little dress, little short dress, and, you know, we were doing these very, very physical scenes. And we would, you know, Clint would yell cut and my dress would be up somewhere, you know, and he'd always put my skirt down. He was just like such a gentleman and just so professional. And, um, you know, we had to stab each other. I think he had like 25, you know, he was much older when we did it. He was in his, I think he was in his, I don't remember, but late seventies, I would think. And, you know, and, um, and it, he, he, you know, he had bruises. Your skin gets thinner as you get older. He had bruises all over his body. I had bruises all over my body. And he was just, you know, the sweetest, sweetest man. And we had to do some pretty uncomfortable things. And he just made it so easy. And so um, he just did his best to be just always respectful and was never anything other than that. And at the end, you know, I think he said to me, um, he said, well, at the very beginning, when he first met me, he said, I'm kind of nervous about our scene. And that was, first of all, that's a very sweet thing for Gene Hackman to say to me, uh, because I was a working actor, but I wasn't, you know, anywhere close to his status. And so for me, that was just sweet because he put me in the power position and I was able to just turn to him and say, don't worry, Gene, I'm going to take care of you. And then we had this cute little giggle. And, you know, I was like 30 years old and he was like 75 or something or 76 or something. So that was really sweet that we had that moment. And then at the end, he kind of said to me, I kind of think some sparks flew there. And I said, you know, they definitely did. And, uh, and he, and he like, he like, I drove, I, re I remember seeing him, he had his car come and I was in my trailer and he came to, he came to my trailer to like, give me a hug and tell me how much he loved working with me and how he thought we had sparks flying. And, uh, and he got in his car and, you know, his driver drove him away and he turned around like in his car and like, like looked at me and like, like waved. It was just like, oh, just, he was just, he was a delight. He was a delight in every way. I actually was just thinking about him the other day. He's a delightful, wonderful man. And I mean, maybe I hit him at the perfect time in his life that he was just so, you know, integrated and, um, you know, he could have been a real bastard when he was a young man. I don't know. But I, I, when I got him, he was amazing. <laughs> I mean, if I couldn't love that dude more than I do, you I do you now. just made me absolutely like falling. The way you just described that, I'm ready to go write a movie about your relationship with Gina. Yeah. yeah, it was pretty sweet. It really was. And it was hard, hard stuff. It could have been really bad, but it was just delightful. If I was going to do that again, like that was written totally naked. My character was written totally naked. In fact, it was written like that, like, and I said, you know, I wouldn't do that. And ultimately they ended up writing it that, you know, I have like bra and underwear on and, you know, a dress that comes rips and blah, blah, blah. 
and I, and I really feel to this day, like if I had known the way Clint Eastwood and Gene Hackman were going to behave, because they were both such gentlemen to me, such professionals, so like no lascivious energy, just kind and sweet and respectful and took care of me and made space for me. And, you know, I, I would have been like, oh, I can do this totally naked. Fine. <laughs> if I'd known they were going to be that, that easy. <laughs> I mean, did, when your actor parents see you working with Clint and Gene and some of now the greats you've gotten to work with, yeah. is their reaction like, wow. <laughs> I think so. I think they like it. But you know, it's funny because some like they don't really get the office at all. <laughs> I can't I can't understand because you know what? It was such a pioneering way of making television that yeah, then Parks yeah. and Rec came in with. But no one had really in America ever seen that type of television. No. Completely different. Completely different. It was absolutely a maverick. And uh, you know, and and I think, you know, really without the amazing executive uh, push of Kevin Riley at the time, it would have just, it would have, it would have bombed. Nobody was watching it. We only did six episodes the first season. Nobody was watching it. It was not going to get picked up unless, but we had an executive that was at NBC at the time. His name was Kevin Riley and he fought for our show. He believed in the office in a way that was the thing that made it keep going. I'm so grateful for Kevin Riley, and I want I need an executive like that on my documentary. <laughs> when you're when you're in that position and you're worried that a show is going to get canceled, what's the mindset at that point? Are you like actively looking for other jobs? Are you praying like Manifest just got canceled by NBC, but they were number one over the weekend on Netflix, and there's a whole Save Manifest campaign right now. But uh -huh. what's the mindset of an actor when you're like, oh man, I might be looking for a job soon? Yeah, I mean, I think that's every every actor's different in how they handle that. As I said, because I started at six years old, I've just been I've been dealing with that my whole life, and I I don't think I really go into too much uh, freak out. I I've been on you know I I I just sort of go from thing to thing, and I always know that something interesting will pop up somewhere somehow someday, and I I I just sort of uh, ride the I ride the wave of you have to have a certain personality to be able to to be able to deal with the um, inconsistency of, of what it is to be an actor. What was your favorite Jan moment? Cause there are some memorable ones, but what was your favorite? Oh my gosh. Uh, I like in the, I like in the cocktail episode um, when she says something about being a dying star and that's what she said. But I also like when she just grabs him and kisses him like when she just decides like you're gonna be mine <laughs> i think that's really funny <laughs> i think it's really funny and steve's reaction is just so like it's so great he's just so he's so like you know he doesn't know what to do and yet he likes it but he's like I, this is amazing but it's awful <laughs> such a great reaction what was your husband's reaction with the boob job episode <laughs> Yeah, I call that my strap-on chest. Um, I mean, we all thought it, we thought it was funny. I think Greg kind of came up with that because I had said something about boob jobs and, you know, he, he, 
he sort of, I think I said something like, it's interesting. I don't know that anyone in our cast has boob job, has a boob job. And like, usually you get a whole bunch of actors, and, you know, and I don't know whether that's true or not true, but, um, but I just know that he, he liked it and liked the idea of Jan getting a boob job. <laughs> and it was, we all thought it was hilarious. It's a hilarious, um, you know, just, I love that, like he takes her back because she gets a boob job, it's so dumb. Melora, this has been an absolute pleasure. Congratulations on the finale of The Bold Type. Congratulations on everything and all of your other projects. This has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you, Arthur. You too. And I'll see you on the next one. <laughs>